Well, um, we are continuing in our series titled Emmanuel, God with us. And throughout the uh, just past couple weeks and next couple weeks, we're going to be examining how it is that we can experience the presence of God, the presence of God, to really uh, have him and experience him dwelling uh, within us, among us, and over us. And last week, we looked at the tabernacle, which was a tent that God designed and, and, and led Israel to build so that Israel could worship him and so that he could dwell in the midst of his people. The tabernacle was to be in the center of Israel's camp as they wandered through the wilderness, and he wanted to be present with his people. Uh, today, um, we're going to be looking at the temple of God, And so hundreds of years later, about 500 years later, after the tabernacle was constructed, King David kind of comes into the picture, and we know that King David was a powerful king. Uh, Even as a young boy, he takes out Goliath. He was a conquering, militant king. And so after he's conquered his enemies, and as Israel is starting to enjoy peace, and as they've settled in the promised land, as they've established Jerusalem as their center, after he's built his own palace, we see David has a desire to build a temple for his God. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be reading a bit of a longer passage. It's going to be 12 verses. It's going to go up on the screen, but um, it's always better to, to read the print. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now when the king lived in his house And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And at that point, Nathan is a prophet, right? Kind of David's main uh, uh, source of of wisdom and, and to know the will and word of God. And so he tells this to Nathan, and Nathan says, Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. But actually, God course corrects. Verse four, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Amen. I'm going to pause there. Actually, let me read verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Well, here in this great passage, 
what begins as a discussion about the temple, what begins as, as, as King David's desire to build a house for the Lord. He's living in his own house, his own palace. He says, how can I live in this house when, when my God is dwelling in a tent? This discussion about a temple actually leads to God's covenant with King David. Theologians call that the Davidic covenant. And just as we have read, David has a desire to build his Lord a house, a temple. He wants to bless him as he realizes how much God has blessed him and protected him and enriched him. He wants to bless the Lord and serve the Lord and build him a magnificent temple. But surprisingly, we see that God rejects David's proposal. We're gonna see shortly why God rejected it. But for now, we need to just recognize that God simply says, I never asked you, David, to build me a temple. I never commanded you to build me a temple like I commanded Moses and Israel to build me a tabernacle. He never requested a temple. And then God says, you know what, David? It's not going to be you who is going to bless me. Instead, I'm going to bless you. You thought you were going to bless me. That was your heart's desire. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bless you. You wanted to build me a house, but you know what I'm going to do, David? I'm going to establish your household. I'm going to establish your household. Just as I gave you victory in battle, I will now give you and your offspring and your descendants rest and peace. And if you keep reading through verse 16 in our passage, God tells David that through his offspring, He's going to make an everlasting kingdom. On a side note, church, this is one of the amazing truths about our God. Okay. Our God is an amazing God. He is not a God of, of need. He is not a God of want. There is no envy and no insecurity in our God. Okay. God wasn't looking at David's, David's cedar palace and been like, oh my gosh, that guy's so selfish. How dare he live in a palace while I'm in a tent? He doesn't look at us and be like, oh my gosh, that guy's driving a Lexus. What do I have? That person lives in a, in a home and, and has all of these things. Our God is not a God of envy. He is not a God of need or wants. And oftentimes, when we seek to serve him, when you and I resolve in our hearts that we want to bless the Lord, you know what God does? He blesses us. He enriches us and he gives us more than we could ever ask or imagine. He certainly, by grace, gives us more than we ever deserve. And that's just a note about our God, okay? Our God is rich in love and he is a God of blessing. And we see that in God's response to David. He doesn't rebuke him. In fact, he just says, you know what? You thought you were gonna bless me. I'm gonna bless you. You thought you were gonna do something for me. I'm going to do something for you. Now, in our passage today, as we look at the topic of the temple, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to look at the meaning of the temple. What does it stand for? What is its purpose? What are all the symbols there for? Second, we're going to look at the fulfillment of the temple, the fulfillment of the temple, and lastly, our place in the temple. Okay, God has a place for us. He has a purpose for us in the temple as well. So the meaning of the temple, the fulfillment of the temple, and our place in the temple. Now, while I was reading, uh, I, I explained that I was going to tell you guys why God rejected David as the temple builder. Okay, and that's an important question. And we actually see this as we continue to read through the Old Testament and the scriptures. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 7 to 10, David is talking to his son Solomon. 
okay? He knows Solomon is going to be the next king. He's going to be his successor. He's in line to inherit the throne, and he's going to talk to him about building the temple, and he's going to explain to him why it wasn't me, why God didn't want me to build the temple. This is what David says, verse 7. My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Amen. So why didn't God allow David to build him a temple? The answer is this. It's because David had shed so much blood in his lifetime. Even as a youth, David was a warrior who defeated Goliath, right? How many of you as teenagers, you know, has ever slayed somebody, right? He did. He fought to win peace throughout the promised land. David had killed tens of thousands. There was even a song about him. I don't know how the song was. As I was prepping the sermon, I thought about trying to like write a jingle, but it was this kind of song and poem that all the people of Israel would say. They would, oh, they would say, Saul, King Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands, right? And they would just kind of sing this and chant this so much that King Saul got jealous and he burned with envy. How dare this young David upend me? But this was David, a man who in the name of the Lord for his nation had, had killed tens of thousands. Now, it's not as simple as God saying, hey, David, you have too much blood on your hands. You can't build me a temple. Okay, that's initially what I thought it was. And the more you think about that, it doesn't really always make sense. There's actually a greater reason, a greater purpose, a more beautiful purpose as to why God says no to David, but yes to Solomon. Okay, the real reason why God rejected David was because he wanted the builder of the temple to reflect the meaning of the temple. Okay? God wanted the person, the king who built the temple to reflect and point to the meaning of the temple. And that builder would be Solomon, okay, Solomon. Now think about the name Solomon. We have a Solomon at our church. I don't know if he's here today. I think sometimes it comes to second service, right? But um, do you know what Solomon means? Okay. The root word of Solomon shares the same word as shalom, that Hebrew word shalom for peace. You see, David was the warrior king, but his son Solomon, right, as David says and God tells him, his son Solomon would be a man of rest. Solomon would be a king of peace who enjoyed rest from his enemies. And the temple, this edifice that would be constructed, not a temporary tent wandering around through the wilderness. No, this temple made of brick and stone and gold and silver and bronze. This was to reflect the peace of God, the strength of God and the rest of God in the land. Now, as David knew he was not going to be the one to build the house of God, he did the next best thing. You know what David did? He collected vast sums of gold and silver and supplies for the building project. So he gifted Solomon 
with great wealth to be set apart for the building of the temple. And I was kind of like online Wikipedia or like, you know, Google searching like how much it would have cost. The numbers are kind of astronomical. So even me as a skeptic, I kind of don't believe it, right? But some people are saying it costed upwards of like $200 billion today's money to build the, the temple. But I'm like, come on, right? Either way, it was really expensive, really extravagant. And David had collected all of these offerings, all that he could, okay, to set that apart for the purpose of his son building God uh, a temple. Now, it took Solomon seven years to build the temple, and the layout of the temple was very similar to the layout of the tabernacle. It was just more glorious, right, on a larger scale. There's a picture of what the temple may have looked like, okay? Uh, It's 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, not including the outer court. So just the actual building where there's like a roof and the sides and all of that, right? So that's 90 by 30, and it's about 45 feet tall, okay? While the temple was not large, the quality of its workmanship was magnificent. There was nothing like this in all of Israel. Um, The upper court was for all the Jews, and right when the Jews enter into the upper court to come and worship, they see, just like the tabernacle, that altar of burnt offerings, like a reminder that they come and as they worship, they bring their offerings to the Lord. And as they see those animals, right, see those birds, see those offerings burnt up and consumed, they are reminded that their sins are atoned for, that God is a holy God and yet he is a merciful God. They see the wash basins for purification. And just like the tabernacle, uh, just like the tabernacle, the temple was divided into two parts. There are two parts. There's the holy place and the holy of holies. And only the Levites, only the priests got to enter into the actual temple. Okay? And in the holy place, there were furnishings, the altar of incense. There was the table of showbread. There was the, uh, the lampstand. I talked about those things last week. If you're here for the first time, go on our website. You know, that's more in-depth. We don't have time for that today, okay? And then in the inner place, it's called the Holy of Holies, and the high priest enters in there one time of year, one time of the year on the Day of Atonement, right, to make an offering where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the mercy seat is, where the two cherubim are, 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 have their wings covering their faces, bowing down before the glory and majesty of God. The high priest goes in there and sprinkles the blood of a goat, to ask for forgiveness, not only for themselves, but for their entire people, for all of Israel, that God would atone for their sins. That's what was going on in the temple. Just like the tabernacle, the temple represented God's dwelling with his people. It reminded Israel that he was holy and set apart from them, but at the same time, God had drawn near to them by his grace and kindness. Uh, there's a great theologian named Edmund Clowney, and, and I was reading a lot of his work on this sub- subject. I love what he writes on the temple. He says, the temple was both a barrier and an avenue. Okay, think about that. It was both a barrier and an avenue. Okay? If you were an average Jew, not one of the Levites, you could come to the temple and worship, but you had to stay in the outer court, Right? You could stay and you could see the burnt offering lifted up to God. You could see the priests wash themselves in the basins of water. And that's fantastic, but that is as far as you could go. You only know about what's inside the holy place because that's what the priests are teaching you about. But you've never seen it. You've never gone there. You've heard about the Ark of the Covenant, but you have never seen it with your own eyes. You you know that that's where 
The high priest goes once a year, like many of you guys. There's a, there's a closet and a door here. You do not know what's back there, right? right? I mean, you've been coming in. We have an office over there. Most of y'all haven't even been inside our staff office. You're like, I, I see them walking in and out. I have no idea. That's Israel, right? <laughs> the barriers are up, right? You're here to worship. You're here with the people of God, and yet there are barriers. That's what the temple is reminding all of Israel. Yes, there's an avenue. Yes, God has provided a pathway for you to come and to know him and to worship him. And yet, you can only come so close. You can only come so close. You can only experience him so much. Now, as magnificent and wondrous as the temple was, if you keep reading through the Old Testament, you'll see after King Solomon, it is all downhill. The temple experiences pillaging, desecration, and even destruction. The kings of Israel, kings such as uh, Asa and uh, Ahaz, they plundered the temple to pay tribute to pagan kings. Did you guys know that? There were Jewish kings who went into the storerooms of the temple to strip it of its gold, to strip it of its silver, to turn and pay foreign kings for protection for honor, to pay them off, to satisfy them, to make earthly peace with them. The things of God were given to pagan kings. There were other kings. There were other kings named Manasseh and Jehoiakim. Do not name your kids these names, right? These kings set up false idols in the temple for idol worship. They desecrated the house of God. And finally, as Israel has completely just lost its faith, lost its way, and has been worshiping and chasing all these pagan gods, finally, the temple is destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and his armies with the fall of Judah in 587 BC. As glorious and as magnificent as the temple was, when, when, when they had their first worship service in the temple, you know what happened? That's where we get the phrase Shekinah glory. The glory of God, the presence of God came down upon the temple like a cloud and the people were amazed. As magnificent and as beautiful as that was, that holy and sacred place of brick, stone, and gold was desecrated, pillaged, and eventually destroyed. To quote Clowney one more time, this quote's gonna go up on the screen. Yet, God's covenant faithfulness triumphs Over the storm of destruction, all is swept away except God's purpose of grace. But that purpose fills the horizon with the rainbow of his promise. God was not consumed in the flames of the temple, nor did his promises perish. I love that. Imagine being an Israelite and seeing the house of God burning down at the hands of a Babylonian army. And you would think, woe is us, we are ruined. God's house is burning. And yet he was not consumed. His promises did not perish. The true beauty and power of the temple was not found in the gold and the silver, but in the glory of his divine presence. And in Jesus Christ, church, we see the temple fulfilled. In Christ, we see the temple fulfilled. Let's move to the next point. Though there are many ways in which Jesus fulfills the meaning and purpose of the temple, I just want to highlight three. 
And I want to share something I, I learned this week that was really encouraging and refreshing. Uh, I learned something really beautiful about the temple. Did you know the, how the location of the temple was determined? Okay. How did they choose that site where the temple would be built? Okay. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, we learn that God instructed David to build the temple on a mountain called Mount Moriah. Okay. Mount Moriah. And there's actually only one other place in the Bible where Mount Moriah is mentioned by name. And that's in Genesis chapter 2. Okay? I'm sure that most of you guys don't have like Genesis chapter 2 like memorized. Uh, this is what happens in Genesis, oh, sorry, Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham, Abraham who has been waiting for years and years, decades, for God to give him a son. Well, God command, he finally gives him a son. His name's Isaac. And God commands him to go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him as an offering. And with a heavy heart, with a broken heart, and yet a resolute heart, Abraham takes his son. They saddle a donkey. They go up to top, the top of Mount Moriah. And he ties him up. And Isaac's like, Dad, what are you doing? Where is the ram? This is not the way that, that, that we family, that this is not family worship in the normal manner. Am I about to die? And Abraham lifts up his knife to sacrifice his son. God says, stop, stop. Now I know, now I know that you truly love me. Now I know that you truly trust in me. Now I know that you truly obey. He passed that test of faith and God provides a substitute for Isaac. He provides a ram that is caught in a thicket nearby and they sacrifice that ram as a substitute for Isaac. All of this happened on Mount Moriah. Church, the very ground on which the temple was laid, that very ground, that very sacred place, it points to Jesus. It points to Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. It points to Jesus Christ, who is our substitute, as he bore the wrath of God on the cross for us. We could be redeemed. We could be sons and daughters. That's a beautiful way that, that Jesus fulfills even the land, the dirt that the temple was built upon. Second way Jesus fulfills the temple. Luke in chapter, in, in Luke chapter two, we have the story of Jesus as a young boy. We don't have any, too many young boy Jesus stories, but this is a great one. Jesus is brought to the temple for purification out of obedience to the law of Moses. And there was an old man named Simeon. He's ready to die, but he had received a prophecy from the Holy Spirit that he would not die before seeing the Messiah. Right? They're waiting on the Messiah. They're waiting on, on the Savior of Israel. And Simeon was told by the Holy Spirit, you know, you're going to see him before you pass. And Jesus walks into the temple. He strolls in with his parents for purification. And when Simeon saw Jesus in the temple, this is what he declared, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for, the, for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory, glory to your people, Israel. Do you know what's, what connection Simeon was making? That as he saw Jesus, the Messiah, that in Jesus Christ, the glory of the Lord had returned to the temple. The glory had come back. God's light 
his peace, his salvation had returned as Christ re-entered, as entered into the temple. The scriptures declare that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The scriptures declare that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so as young Jesus enters into the temple, Simeon realized that the glorious presence of God had come. And now he could return to God in glory. Thirdly, thirdly, Jesus not only returns the glory of God to the temple, but in the gospels, he teaches that he himself is the true temple. Okay, we gotta make that, we just gotta level up one time. Okay, Jesus doesn't bring only the glory of God to the temple. Jesus teaches us he is himself the temple. In John 2, 19, Jesus tells the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. And now Jesus isn't talking about Solomon's temple because Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, King Herod, he built a second temple, okay? And this one didn't take seven years. It took 46 years, okay? It it was larger, kind of on on a bigger scale even than Solomon's temple, right? And Jesus is there. That's where Jesus is teaching. That's where he's talking. That's where he overturns the tables. And there he's teaching about the temple to these Jews. And he says, you know what, guys? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. They don't fully understand what he's talking about. But John tells us, right, that he's clearly talking about his own body, his own death, and his own resurrection. And church, this is a reminder that Jesus, as the true temple of God, that he died on a cross. As the temple of God, where offerings and sacrifices are made to atone for sin, that Jesus, as the temple of God, was also the final sacrifice, the final and perfect offering to satisfy the wrath of God so that you and I could be forgiven and redeemed. Now, church, if Jesus is the true temple, as he says he is, as he declares to us he is, we need to pause and remember what it is that the temple offers us, okay? Jesus says, I'm the true temple. What does God offer us in the temple? In Solomon's temple, was it not peace? Was it not rest? Was it not for us to cease from our striving and our wandering, our warring to try to secure for ourselves a plot of land, a safe place for real success? Friends, what are ways that you and I, we try to get grounded? What are ways that we try to like establish our households? establish our lives. Perhaps you are a college student and you are graduating now. You know what you need? A job, right? And you feel like, I will finally grow up. I will finally keep moving ahead. I will, I'll be maturing and I'll be strengthening uh, my finances, my family, my own life if I can now just get the right job or get into the right graduate school, okay? Um, I think for many, uh, all of our families, right, and someday for all of you guys, uh, you know what's like concreteness to Americans? Home ownership, okay? I've lived here for 18 years now in Southern California. I've been a renter for 18 years, okay? I have moved more than like a dozen times. I am tired of it. Okay. I, like, I, I, I resonate with, with Israel wandering through the wilderness, moving around, right? Right, my, my lease is up. I'm like, oh my goodness, right? And I got to move. Uh, next thing, they want to raise my rent. I'm like, no way. I'm going to a, new, a cheaper place, right? I'm just tired of moving. And in our culture, they say, if you can just own a home, 
if you, if you can find that house and really settle down, you and your family, you'll be whole, right? You're set. There's stability, right? There's strength and security. Well, friends, God is telling us today that true rest, true strength, true security, if you want to stop your wandering, okay, if you want to stop your, if you're tired of the grind and the war, it's not from, hey, I'm just finally going to get that perfect job or buy that perfect house. No, God is telling us today, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is your temple. He has come to, to, to give you rest from your wandering. Not only is Jesus the true temple, as you and I trust in him, he tells us that we have a place in the temple. And there's all of us here today, we need to hear that, okay? It's easy for us to say, Jesus, you are the temple. Give me rest, we trust in you. Jesus wants to do one more thing, bring you one step closer into his presence. He wants to bring you into the temple. He tells you and I today through his word, we have a place in the house of the Lord. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2 as he's reflecting upon Christ in the work of the gospel, verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, read that, holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is Paul's sequence of thought here. You just gotta follow that along. That First, Jesus is the cornerstone, Okay? Through his life, death, and resurrection, we become saints and citizens in his kingdom. Second, his body is the temple, right? His body is now the temple. It's not King Herod's temple. It's not Solomon's temple. It's not this, this physical structure. No, his body is the true temple of God, the dwelling place of God. And as you and I trust in the gospel, we become members of his body. We become members of, of his temple. We now have a place in his temple and his spirit, God's spirit, dwells in you. Church, this is the work and will of God. He wants to dwell in you. Okay? He wants to make his presence manifest, to, to, to make his presence known and powerful in your life. And God knows that if he wants to be that intimate with you, then you need to become a temple. You need to become a temple, right? You need to become that, that, that little place where there is a holy of holies, right? And God in his kingship, God in his greatness and majesty can, can reign in your heart and in your life. He wants you to experience his presence. So he sets, up, sets you apart and gives you a place in the temple. Now, last week I mentioned that this language is super foreign to us. We say, oh yeah, we pray like we're sons and daughters of God. When's the last time somebody prayed, Lord, we are the temple? You're like, no, I've, I've never prayed it. I've actually never prayed it, okay? I've never heard it. We don't talk like this, okay? Very Christian, very few Christians refer to themselves as the temple of God. In fact, the only time uh, we use this language in the church is when we hear that like finger-waving Christian Pharisee who's like, oh, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't drink, 
because your body is a temple, right? We all heard that, right? We're like, oh my gosh, yeah, I guess we shouldn't. But then my comeback was like, oh yeah, you shouldn't drink Coke or eat a burger or eat red meat because your body's a temple. And then we're like, oh, okay, whatever. Um, That's the only time, only time we actually identify ourselves or other people as the temple of God. But I want us to really consider this. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then you are part of the temple of God. If you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, then you are the temple of God. You may not feel it. You may not fully understand it. You and I, we certainly do not deserve this title to call ourselves the temple of God. We certainly have not earned it. But here's the truth today. It is an identity and a privilege that God by his grace has given you. Will you receive that? Okay. God is telling you, this is who you are. This is what I want for you. This is your identity. Now, here's the amazing thing of God. Okay. Our God is a God who makes us what we are not. Okay. So all of that natural like kind of cynicism that we have, like, oh, I'm not the temple. I'm just like baby Christian, right? Or I can't be the temple. I'm not even that holy. I don't even read my Bible. I don't even pray that much. I, 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 we don't identify ourselves as the temple because we don't feel like we've got like the holy of holies and the spirit of God dwelling in us, okay? Very natural, right? You, in and of yourselves, naturally, you and I, we are not the temple of God. But our God is a God who makes us what we are not. God makes you, he knows you are not. But by his power and by his spirit, he makes you what you are not. Think about the other language that we use. Oh, Lord, we are forgiven. You know what? We don't deserve that forgiveness. The scriptures call us as holy and set apart, that we are the righteousness of God. You know what? None of us here are righteous, not even one. How does God make you righteous? It's through the bloodshed work of Jesus. We are clothed in the blood of the lamb, and so he makes you righteous. You actually don't become righteous on your own, right? We don't earn it. We don't become it on our own. He makes us what we are not. Naturally, you and I, friends, we are rebels and wanderers. We are all prodigals. You know what God does? By the power of the gospel, he makes you and I sons and daughters, right? We're children of the devil by sin by flesh. But God says, no, you're going to be my sons and daughters by the work of my son, Jesus Christ. So today, if you are here and you're like, you doubt yourself, go ahead. You should. We have every reason to doubt our own identity and our righteousness. The call today is not to believe in yourself and your ability. The call today is to believe in God and what God can do in you what God through Christ can do for you, what God can make you into. And today he is reminding us that when we believe in Christ and we receive the gospel, we become the temple of God and his spirit dwells in us. We must receive that by faith. Now, I wanna share one implication, okay? If that is who we are, if we are the temple of God, not because we've earned it or accomplished it, but because Jesus has, there is an implication And it is finally this, it is holiness. Every step you take closer and closer to the center of the temple reminds us that God is holy, okay? 
your life should reflect the holiness of God. Okay? Not your own holiness and self-righteousness, but the holiness of God. Your words, your decisions, how you spend your time, your money, your relationships, how you raise your family should reflect the holiness of God if you are the temple of God. Paul talks about this, especially when it comes to marriage, when it comes to our sexual purity. He makes a direct connection between holiness and us being the temple of God. And this is our last scripture passage for today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Verse one of chapter seven, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness and completion in the fear of God. Church, There is not a single one of us who is above reproach when it comes to this passage. All of us have intermingled our lives with some form or shape of idolatry. I don't have time to unpack every single example and particularize it for your life, but I want to invite you to examine your own heart. You are the temple of God. Is there idolatry in your life? Have you defiled yourself? Have you forsaken the holiness of God? And the scripture's saying, the scriptures are telling us this should not be so. God is our God, we are his people. Our lives should reflect his holiness. Church, I would love for all nations to be a church not filled with self-righteousness, not filled with finger waggers or like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't touch that. You shouldn't go there because we're the temple of God. No. I hope and pray that our church would be a, a place of, of genuine holiness where we are set apart, not just by culture, right? Not just by our own preferences, but set apart as we consider the heart and the holiness of God that we would imitate him. We would follow hard after him. We would obey him, right? Obey him even when it is costly and difficult. Would you consider that today? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you, at this moment, would your Holy Spirit take up residence in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives? Some for the very first time, others, we ask for renewal. Lord, we confess that we have gone our own way. We confess that we have forsaken this identity as being your people, as being temples for your presence. Lord, we pray, God, that that right now that you would fight for us. And we pray right now that you would win, that you would become king over our lives again.
So Lord, would your light shine upon our hearts? Show us if there are any wayward, if there's any waywardness in us. Expose to us our own idolatry and sin. Break our hearts. Help us to confess them before you. And be renewed and redeemed by the blood of the cross, uh, blood of our Lord. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.